G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 with Neil Johnson on Vision. We're going to be talking about Australia's history. Putting it under the microscope once again today with a special guest who has studied the political, social and economic forces that shaped Australia's development. His latest book has a fresh take on Australian history. He uses original documents, government letters, articles and legislation to reveal some compelling propositions. And some of those come around the Aboriginal people, along with everyone else who voted for Federation. We'll talk today about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, their relationship with the early settlers and their voice to the nation and however that might even look like uh, in an ongoing sense. Well, our special guest today is historian Dr Christopher Reynolds. His book is called What a Capital Idea, Australia, 1770 to 1901. As a historian, Christopher was first listed in the International Who's Who Historical Society in 2006. He's published in politics, in business and education. He's been a school teacher, a university professor, business manager and political strategist. He was even awarded a commendation from former US President Ronald Reagan, having held White House appointments and worked for several US political campaigns. In Australia, Christopher Reynolds has held positions including the Executive Officer for the New South Wales Minister for Public Works and was Executive Director for the World Trade Centre in Sydney. Christopher, a special welcome back to 2020. Thank you very much. I've got to ask you first, Christopher, how's the book going? Last time we spoke, it had only just been released. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's a significant volume. Uh, how have things been going? Well, there were quite a number of um, your listeners actually responded and purchased the book, um, but we had to do some forward orders, and um, the book is coming off the press um, as we speak and will be in the boxes to us. So I will actually have um, several hundred books within, um, within 10 days, I hope. So um, I've got to meet a number of people um, that are very interested in the um, upper echelons of our political and religious society, so it's being incredibly well received. And I think it's, um, as Eric Abetz, who is the former Deputy Prime Minister, said, I want to see this book in every home in Australia. So that was a compliment. It was a compliment. And uh, you're not backward in coming forward to. You like to meet people in leadership positions, uh, governmental or uh, in you know areas of public service. You like to meet people. It's been your experience. You've been shaped in a lot of those areas. Uh, and what sort of reception are you getting from leaders who are interested in something of a fresh take on Australian history? Well, the first thing is that uh, people who are in leadership are incredibly busy people, so to get them to actually open the book and read something uh, is a challenge, um, which is going to lead me to do now do a number of posts in one pages, read this, try reading this. But see, in the front of the book, I, I did a list of interesting facts 
So I thought if I do that, you can sort of skim through and say, oh, I didn't know that. Oh, I didn't know that. For example, as you just mentioned, Aborigines voted for Federation. And, you know, did they really? They voted for Federation. Or here's a news flash: Aborigines get the voice, 1856. <laughs> right? So it's these sort of things that we, that uh, um, the, the what now, the, um, oh, I didn't know that, the wow moments that the book is full of. You know, this is where it gets controversial, isn't it? Because some people will be picking dates out of the air uh, to suit their own arguments. And I know that it was quite a significant process uh, from Aboriginal people being able to have a vote uh, to what happens federally as as opposed to what happened in the states uh, because there was some significant developments uh, while people get confused about when Aboriginal people had a vote. Uh, that's something that we could take that back into history too, back to that uh, 1856 date. Well, let me get, uh, pick that up, is that the Aboriginal people were not separated from anybody else. Everybody were British subjects, and people think we were a European settlement. It's absolute absolute tripe. Even after the gold rush, only 2% of the population came from anywhere else but Britain. And by the time we reached 1900, 5% of the population, only 5% of the population, came from anywhere else but Britain in terms of their ancestral line, of course. Um, And a large percentage of that 5% were actually German, which I was quite surprised to discover. But here's the thing that we often miss. Why is it that um, the Aborigines were cut out of the federal census because that, that is what happened. And the reason is that while they were all preparing for federation, South Australia realised that it could actually include all the Aboriginal tribes in its cohort and therefore pick up more seats in the federal parliament. So Victoria and New South Wales said, not on your life are you going to get away with that. So it actually was, and probably maybe still is, the last clause in the constitution that actually restricts full-blood Aborigines, not mixed blood, which is quite a significant statement. So full-blood Aborigines weren't to be counted in the census. Now, that wasn't anything to do with elections because the Aborigines could still vote in the states, in the colonies, which have now become states. So when we actually say, well, what's this separation, what's this division between full-blood and the, and the mixed-blood Aborigines, well, the census that was done that same year in, 2000, uh, in um, 1901 that was published in 1905 um, comes to this issue, and it notes that of the people who they could identify as Aborigine, 95% were of mixed-blood. Only 5% of Aborigines over that 100 years since settlement, 120 years, were still full-blood Aborigines. So we're talking about a minority of a minority in the country. So it wasn't, as it were, and there were reasons for it. It was against South Australia. It wasn't against the Aboriginal people. And so South Australians, uh, let's put them in the sights here because uh, sometimes uh, we talk about those terms, don't we? Vote rigging or, Mm. as somebody said, vote farming. And in South Australia in those days, it was recognised that if one side of politics could get an advantage by bringing Aboriginal people uh, from their native lands uh, into getting a voting opportunity, then they could increase their vote. And so you've got Victoria and uh, and New South Wales uh, that have said, 
we won't have anything to do with the vote rigging that was going on in South Australia. So it creates all of this controversy oh, now about about yeah. how we interpret. What yeah, happened. that's right. Because we didn't. Nobody seemed, You know, nobody realizes until I get into act what actually happened. The other important thing is that by um, by um, 1949, it was time to fix the problem. And so there were two acts that were passed in 1949, and we seem to have forgotten both of them. One is the Electoral Act, the Commonwealth Electoral Act, which allowed Aborigines to vote again in 1949. The other one was the Citizenship Act, and we became Australian citizens instead of British subjects. And that's what Australia Day is. January 26 is Australians Day because we pick up citizenship. has absolutely nothing to do with Arthur Fillon. So citizenship, and now here we are talking about citizenship for all Australians. Uh, that's black that's and yep. white, Indigenous, non-Indigenous. So everyone citizens together. So there is a certain, in that citizenship, an equality before the law. Uh, definitely. Because it actually states, if I can recall, if you're born in this country, you're automatically a citizen. Um, and that was it. And then, of course, there were those who were British subjects that, that could apply, that had come out from Britain, could immediately apply to be British, uh, to be Australian citizens. And then, of course, we eventually move on to, you've got to be here for a number of years and jump through so many hoops and tick so many boxes. Uh, let's... I mean, there's so many dimensions here, and uh, I hope we're not getting things so far out of order because we might be jumping forward, we might be jumping mm. back, and uh, I know you're, uh, you love to talk about this wherever. And we've talked about this a little before too, about the motivations for mm. even coming to Australia because even though we might talk about citizenship, even though we might talk about equality before the law, uh, there are those who are going to say, uh, but wasn't there an invasion in the first place? Oh, I love this topic. And uh, <laughs> so we might even try and restrict you on this if it's out of hand. Okay. But, uh, but what I like to talk to you about are those Christian foundations that were happening before the First <clears throat> Fleet arrived that set up the motivations for yeah. anyone yeah. from the British coming to Australia in the first place. Yeah. So whether their motive was invasion. Right. Um, I have a different approach to being an historian. I often like to think I'm, I'm more or something other than just a historian. I suppose it's my training working for the US Senate and Congress that what, what I wrote had to be exactly right. It wasn't going anywhere. So I am the only Australian ever to hold senior positions in the US Senate and Congress because of the quality of my work, which has now come to, to write this book. So I've got a nose, a cynicistic nose, to looking for things beyond what you see. So there's two, two, uh, two qualifications for when I start reading. Where is the money? Go down the money trail. 90-something percent of all politics has to do with money, so go looking for it. The other one is context. You don't understand what's going on right now, right here, unless we understand what is happening around us. A little bit in the past, but certainly currently. Now, at the beginning of the 1700s, Britain had, had become a, a depraved place, morally and socially. To give you one example, of the infant poor in homes in London, 97% of those children died in the homes. 97%. The country was so depraved. By the time we get to the 1850s, John Wesley walks onto the scene in the 60s. 
And, <clears throat> and of course, as you know, there's never been a man that um, did so much. The so 1760s, yeah. The 1760s. Um, he went up, um, he started to take on a social program. He went up to the, um, to the, um, to the prisons in Bristol, um, uh, Highgate, Northgate. I'll come to him in a second. But he went to the prison and he found that the, 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 the conditions were so depraved that he started to take food and blankets along to the prison. Well, the council in, Bri- uh, in Bristol, Bristol decided to, uh, Northgate Prison, decided to ban him and stop him from going to the prison. Well, he kept coming anyway and left it outside. Well, eventually the council had to, to, um, to, um, to uh, override what they had said and let him and the Methodists come into the prison. Well, the superintendent becomes a Methodist. He gets converted. And Wesley went around 57 prisons in 90 days. And he brought on prison reform in the, in the 1860s and the 70s, 70s. And the, the whole prison system was under, under renovation and renewal in that period of the 70s. Remember that um, Arthur Phillip and the, uh, the felons that came to Australia is the 1860s. So Britain was already under this massive reform. But let me just jump back a second. So the context was that England is in revival. A hundred years later, a survey is done in 1858 of England and Wales, of the 18 million people in England and Wales, 60% were in church on any Sunday. 60% on any Sunday. Think about the children, the elderly, people who had to work. That is an amazing number, but that was the effect. So it's in that context of Christianity that these men sit to devise, uh, uh, Prime Minister Pitt and, and five of his friends, sit in his lounge room and devise this wonderful scheme to come to Australia based on, without a doubt, enlightenment and Christian principles. And often we don't think of the context like that, that England and Wales were in revival during Mm. that 18th century and that was the atmosphere by which prison reform became a motive for actually starting the colony here in Australia. Mm. And, uh, and so in our earlier conversation, you've said, uh, you know, Australia was never a penal colony. Uh, mm. There were other motivations in sending out not only the soldiers, mm. uh, but the convicts were not necessarily treated as prisoners. That's right. There was a law that, was, that began the Elizabethan Act in 1695, and this had to do with felons and what to do with them. But um, someone pointed out, and I, I went and had a look, Ephesians 4.28 says, If he is a thief, let him be given labor, that then you can translate it, that he might be reformed from his ways, or that he might learn to give to others. And um, it is quite possible that this verse out of Ephesians became the basis of that law, because when they looked at the deprivation of England, the law actually said, if he is a thief, give, get him out of the country, give him a second chance at life and give them labor. And that is exactly so that so they put them on the hulks when they when um, people were sentenced to transportation because they were not sentenced to incarceration. You couldn't put them in jail. So they'll put on labor camps and eventually they'll send to America and Australia to to um, serve out their time as laborers. Station sponsor, life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 with Neil Johnson.
on Vision. Talking about some perhaps fresh perspectives on Australian history with Dr Christopher Reynolds. His book is called What a Capital Idea, Australia, 1770 to 1901. Christopher, in your book, you say, and we're reflecting on that time, in England, uh, where there's revival conditions under John Wesley and the amazing things he did in that 18th century, and sending off these convicts to Australia, Arthur Philip being the first governor here. But you say that no king was going to spend millions of pounds sending felons to the other side of the earth to start a military base. Uh, there's got to be some good reasoning in that because that actually makes sense, doesn't it? How do you describe that to people? Well, you have picked on an immense topic. <laughs> um, what was actually happening, if I can, I can I summarize it briefly. After, after the Seven-Year War and the war between Americans and the French, which involved what we call the American War of Independence, um, the, um, uh, the French and the English settled. Um, the war with one one paragraph to do with the Americans that had really nothing to do with their ongoing wars. But both countries were in severe debt with something like $250 billion each. So they decided to do a, an economic pact and we'll you know, do some trade. But France turned to Holland and did an alliance. Now, why? Because the Dutch had the Dutch, Dutch East India Company with 400 ships traveling back and forth across Asia. They had money and were looking for investments. So in came the Dutch money into France, and France took it to build up their navy. And that's what got the English excited, because the French were looking east and they were looking at the British East India Company who were becoming petrified that a war is about to start. So here's the thing that people don't realise. We hear this term uh, terra nullis and we go, oh yes, that, what's that about? Well, terra nullis was a description under international law and it was described, without me actually reading something, what it said was, we, the countries of Europe, recognise that there are places that if you're going to take them over, you've got to do it by conflict. But if a place is terra nullis, nobody lives there, and this is what it should look like, if you're going to, to go and claim that land, it can't be just a military base. You have to settle it, and you have to work that land for it to be recognised. So again, it wasn't any good for England to send down a few battleships to take on the French and La Perouse and splinter a few ships. It wasn't any good for them to set up a military base. They had to form a colony. The big conflict was if you just go and send convicts, where would you get free settlers that are ever going to go out there with the convicts? But remember that these convicts were, were um, on misdemeanor crimes. It was like community service. And so that was the decision to be made. So it was actually to do with forming a settlement. Oh, let me even jump a context the context of the world, the Western European world, was the Industrial Revolution. What was the British East India about? An extension of the Industrial Revolution, resources. Today, why are we in China? The Industrial Revolution, cheaper manufacture. It's still going on. Well, in 1788, it was Australia's turn. So the Industrial Revolution with this colony had arrived. The Industrial Revolution arrives on our shores in 1788. The French were sniffing around for a site for a future colony themselves. Mm -hmm. As you say, there were some uh, there was some negotiations going on and a little bit of um, uh, uh, controversial, uh, you know. Uh, uh, 
putting uh, putting uh, there's a letter or a, a deal between the French and the Dutch. I think you said yeah, an alliance, yeah. Uh, an alliance. Mm. So when convicts were sent to our shores in Australia, they were not here to be a prison, but to be a labour oh, force. Ex- exactly, a labour force. Exactly right. And Philip was given permission to let them free as soon as possible. So even when these gentlemen sat around in Pitt's lounge room, which is where I got the idea, what a capital idea. They sat around and they thought, oh, you know, we could start a colony, you know. We'll send them all out and, of course, you know, well, don't give them any money. They can't steal it any money. We'll give them some land. That seems to be the big problem. And food and and they can take their families and, of course, you know, they can work and get, get, let them have jobs. So if he's a butcher, let him open a butcher shop, you know. And it was just went on. And I, I, I read this conversation and, of course, I could just hear somebody saying, oh, what a capital idea. And I thought that's, that's the title of the book. It was a capital idea for him to go off. And so by the time Arthur Philip left, after just four years, 85% of the people, the felons that had come out with him were free. 85% within five years. They didn't serve seven years or 14 years. He just said, well, go and do what you like. And it's not as though the British government didn't know that there were Aboriginal people here. Mm. And uh, I wonder whether you've got any reflection from your own study here onto what sort of attitude the British were to have toward the Aboriginal people because, you know, start to put in words like invasion in there and, and sometimes uh, those, can, those can change the way we think about things. Uh, what are your thoughts here for care for Aborigines? Mm. Now, remember the number of people who've been here, uh, let's say 50 explorers and the work of William Dampier and, and Cook, uh, were all published and read and known. So when they, they talked about the, the, the people being primitive, it would, it would another way to put it was uncivilised in terms of their own category of civilization. So if you're going to invade a country, if you, let's say you're the Roman Empire, you just walk in and sort of slaughter everyone that gave you any trouble. And maybe in the Second World War, the Japanese forces would have done the same, of course. Um, but when the English came, it was a totally different Christian attitude. Let me read something from this letters patent, which is the foundation document for our political and social system. The king writes, You are to endeavour by every possible means to open an intercourse with the natives and to conciliate their affections, enjoying all our subjects to live in amity and kindness with them. And if any one of our subjects shall wantonly destroy them or give them any unnecessary interruption in the exercise of their several occupations, it is our will and pleasure that you do cause such offenders to be brought to punishment according to the degree of the offence. You will endeavour to procure an account of the natives' inhabitants in the neighbourhood um, of the intended and give a report of the state of the state and how we may continue to intercourse with them. There is no suggestion whatsoever of an intention to invade or hurt, but to care for in that letters patent. So as the colonies grew, the government was to identify the needs and to provide for the Aboriginal people. Um, That might have all sorts of things that might come to mind for people now who are thinking about 
what might happen beyond a voice rep referendum, uh, the thoughts of treaty, uh, the thoughts of reparations and uh, those sorts of things where where there were bad things that happened uh, to Aboriginal people. Uh, any thoughts here? Which not too long out from news. Uh, yeah, we, we have a very difficult issue. I mean, I, like everyone else, has been listening to what's happening with this voice issue. We hear originally that it was going to be a sentence in the prologue. You know, we want to acknowledge that Aboriginal people were here. Well, who's going to get upset about that, you know? Uh, but it then moves across to we're going to put a whole chapter into the Constitution. And I think, wait a second, I mean, our Constitution is based on a principle of the separation of powers between the legislature, the executive, and the courts that goes all the way back to the Magna Carta, where the executive, as is the king, cannot simply decide he's going to declare war or put up taxes. And I remember even watching a movie of Henry VIII, and here he was complaining because he couldn't do what he wanted to. He had to go and ask the parliament. So we have this system, and of course it's, it's much more obviously in the American system where you see the president, the legislature, and the courts, and they're constantly in dialogue or conflict, as we see here. Here it is blurred because of one sentence in our Constitution that says that the secretaries of state under the Governor-General will also be members of the Parliament. And that one sentence destroyed us becoming a Republican form of government. So now, of course, we have ministers in the Parliament and we don't realise that they're also secretaries of state. So we've got this division of power principle. Now, if you come along and you're now going to say there is a, a body, a body politic that is not elected, that is going to influence the executive and the parliament, oh, well, you're putting a whole chapter in the, in the Constitution. You have created a fourth level of government that is not elected. Now, for me, as a political scientist and a politician, this is extremely dangerous stuff, but it gets worse. Christopher, I mentioned a number of the areas of your qualification and expertise a little earlier, but one of those that we didn't mention is that you, in fact, trained in Aboriginal studies at Flinders University, and so you've got a very strong grip on the issues that we're up against when it comes to Australian race, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, Indigenous, non-Indigenous peoples. Uh, give us your insights here into those connections with the Aboriginal community. Well, as you said, uh, in 1975, I was one of the first students to undertake a new course at Flinders University for my diploma in education called Aboriginal Studies. And so I was fascinated, I, you know, a city boy, of course, and, uh, you know, and, and I was uh, interested to, to learn more, but I was therefore qualified to teach Aboriginal Studies um, in high schools. Now, I went on to become friends with uh, Don Dunstan, and I worked with him on a new project over several years for the Pichajara people to get land, to get land rights. And so they ended up with a piece of land as big as England, and that legislation went through um, the year after I um, went off to America, but I was there and foundational in helping the people. I've lived in five of the regions of the world, and you know, I've, I've lived with, with people and learned other languages, um, and I am anything but racist. I can't stop it when I hear a, an accent and say, oh, where are you from? Not because you know, I want to be in any sense critical. I'm always fascinated where people are from. So in that sense, when I come at this topic, I do not come at it 
with any colour um, at all in, in the way I, I read and look for things, but I come with an open mind as I, I've looked at the history of Australia. Well, let's give listeners an opportunity to contribute to our conversation. Let's take some calls. Dee is in Tasmania. Hi, Dee. Welcome. Oh, good morning. Yes, I, um, I'm, I'm coming a bit late to the conversation, but I'm noticing that corporates and organisations are coming out um, saying, you know, like I saw one yesterday, unions for yes. And I was really quite upset about that. I, it seems very Marxist that organisations would take a position. And um, I didn't think they were the ones being asked. <laughs> I thought it was actually individual citizens voting. It's, so corporates. it's corporates and yeah. it's sporting clubs too, D. Uh, people who are taking positions. And we saw this in a number of very controversial and moral debates uh, where, you know, big organisations take a political stance and then, therefore, they put all sorts of full-page advertisements and uh, and they put up the colours of whoever they're supporting. Uh, your thoughts here, Christopher, because corporates mm. taking sides... Well, this is actually something incredibly new to our culture. We have had uh, organisations deciding that they want to take a political view. And so you've got to stop and say, because, I mean, my wife came home and she said, I was just at Woolworths and they're playing Aboriginal music at us. And, I mean, I'm, I'm just getting livid like uh, maybe the person who, who called in. What on earth is going on? Here is an issue that the nation is currently even philosophically divided over what we're going to do. And yet this is called, what is it? propaganda, indoctrination, I mean, all those words. Why would sporting clubs, why? And, I mean, you know, my nose says, where's the money? Where's the money? Why are you doing this? What's in it for you? Is it because you're going to lose customers if you don't? Well, if you be quiet, it won't affect them at all. So why on earth? So there's something going on I can't see, but I don't like it. Uh, there's the issue, isn't it? And uh, while D is on the line, uh, those companies like the Anheuser-Busch company that runs the Bud Light beer in the US, uh, they've taken, they've come a real cropper with their support for a particular issue politically. Mm. And I wonder whether even that sort of boycotting of products and boycotting mm. of corporates might even send a message. Any thoughts here? Uh, yes. I, I think if ever you've had an example of someone shooting themselves in the foot this is it. I have just read uh, this uh, legislation that's gone through the Liberal Party called the Path to Treaty Bill of 2023. There is no doubt that this is the most dangerous piece of legislation that has ever come up in our uh, history since settlement. What it is doing is dividing the sovereignty to start with. And it's saying whoever this particular group is, and we need to talk about that in a second, whoever this group of people is that, that is being identified as Aborigines, they are being called non-Australians. They are declaring their own sovereignty uh, against the sovereign people of Queensland. And it goes further to talk about the money, the economic measure, and then says... All the people and the state and the Commonwealth will be bound by this legislation. This is a declaration of conflict. Where does the companies get bitten in the foot? Because they're going to pay the First Nation tax. They're going to have to pay taxes for their salaries, um, their roads, um, everything is going to come under this economic measure that's going to bite them. 
So, uh, for Dee, Dee, thank you so much for your call, uh, but an interesting way to look at that, because as corporates put their own uh, imprimatur on whichever side, uh, they might have to be the first ones to deal with the consequences of what that means if that progresses from a voice to a treaty. And uh, treaty is an interesting and bigger topic too. Dee, thank you so much for your call. We're taking calls on 1-800-316-316. Let's take another call. Eris is in Hawthorne in Brisbane. Hi, Eris. Welcome along. Hi. Um, what's your name again? I'm Neil, and uh, our guest is Christopher. Oh, okay, Neil and Christopher. What annoys me, and has done since I was a child, I lived in Lismore. And the Aboriginals used to get put in a section in Lismore and, you know, um, they were treated badly, you know, like like from when the English came to Australia. Yeah. Oh, that's terrible. Uh, there's, there's tragedy and there has been stories of significant mistreatment, uh, even massacre of Aboriginal people. And I wonder if you've got a reflection here, Christopher, having studied early documentation and, uh, <clears throat> and formed a history view. Uh, we talked about uh, the care for Aboriginals uh, in the first part of our conversation. That was the intent, but some things went astray in all of that. How do you reflect on those early days? Well, firstly, to get some statistics um, right in what we're talking about, and this is a, a, a topic and close to my heart, um, firstly, by the time we got to 1900, they conducted a national survey, and of those people that could be identified as Aborigine, 95% were of mixed blood. Only 5% of those people in Australia um, of Aboriginal um, descent were of um, full blood, were full blood Aborigines. By the time we get to the last census, which is just what a year or two ago, then what we've got of the people who identified as Aboriginal, three to four hundred-ish uh, thousand. The ninety-eight percent of those are of mixed heritage, so only two percent of people who identify as Aborigines are actually full-blood Aborigines. Of that, of the of the four hundred four hundred thousand, of those of maritable age, seventy percent are married to non-Indigenous. Now I mention all of this because it becomes a very clouded environment as to who we're talking about when it comes to this. But let's also realise that there is a group where there's 20% of Australians that are identifiable as Aborigines living in Aboriginal communities. And yes, we have seen tremendous racism um, over the years, which is what we've just heard. However, having said that, I also have seen, as many people have, that the racism is there on both sides, that, that it's just a, a human characteristic regardless of where we come from. And it's a shocking condition. And recently we were moving towards equality. You know, we were using these words only three or four years ago. Everything needed to be equal. We couldn't have uh, sexist words. We couldn't do this. We had to realise that people of different sexual persuasions, we're all equal. Great move. So what's happening now that we're all supposed to be unequal? Because when we start to see that everybody got the same rights, this is progress and positive. But I don't see that what we're doing at the moment. And just to uh, just to mention, just in case there are some concerned, uh, we certainly uh, don't endorse uh, the use of the sort of terminology uh, that we might hear about uh, Aboriginal people, uh, and some people get quite uh, offended or triggered by mm. some words like that. But Eris, thank you so much for your call. We're taking calls on one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. Let's take another call. John is in South Australia. Hi, John. Welcome. 
John, are you with us? John, you might need to try and call us back. Let's take a call. Colin. Colin is in Bundaberg in Queensland. Hi, Colin. Welcome. Yeah, good morning. How are you, Neil? Good, Colin. What are your thoughts? So, my first thought is, I've got two. My first thought is, how do we get this information out there that Chris has been talking about this morning? Mm. Because it's really, it's revelational information, particularly about how the how the country was originally formed and um, and how well the Aboriginals were treated. Now, I don't disagree that they haven't been mistreated since that point, but originally it wasn't the case. We have Australians and uh, almost everyone you talk to will have best intentions for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples of Australia. Uh, what are your thoughts here, Christopher, for, for Colin? Um how do we get that word out? The, uh, another Tasmanian, um, I sent him uh, Eric Abetz, who was the former Deputy Prime Minister of Australia. I, I sent him a copy of the book as I was writing it. So he got a, an e-book and he wrote back and he said, um, I have just put down your book. I have read every page and every word. It is the best thing I have ever read. Eric Abetz and I have now become friends. We've been on the phone so much. He believes that this book needs to be in every home in Australia. The purpose of the book, if it had a purpose, was to help us become proud of who we are and to just talk facts, talk the truth. Truth-telling, I think the term is. Well, this is it. So, yes, there's a problem. If you can come up with an idea of how I can help people learn some more about our history without any bias i'm just there to tell the truth and i think the truth will will um will um, do wonders for our own pride in this country uh, colin thank you so much for your call let's take another call john is in south australia uh, john uh welcome along to you so i'm just having uh, some difficulty getting john's call to air uh, john i think i'm going to hang up and you might need to call us back i'll try and get you on the air another way uh, John, do call back. I uh, am interested in your call, but uh, not able to take that at the moment. Uh, while we're here, and just uh, we'll just to, to touch on, uh, when you say uh, there's a difference between full blood and mixed blood, and you were reflecting back to 1901 and uh, saying that it was a difference, uh, there was only 5% even full blood at the... Was that... Um, you, you might have to just correct me here. But what I wanted to ask you was, is there statistics around mixed blood and full blood Aboriginal people today? Um, remember my survey stopped in 1901. <laughs> that's, that's true, yes. Um, I'm sure they're identifiable um, in, in terms of, of uh, the, the people who are full blood and mixed blood. But often when we hear the word Aboriginal, like with this business with this treaty, and when I look through this document, I mean, the first thing you do in a contract is look for the definitions, who are the parties and who are they. But it, it just goes into the First Nations who have been here since 65,000 years um, and before the sun came up. And I mean, I looked at it and I thought, well, you know, what are we talking about? Who are, who are we talking about? Now, did, did I just mention the business about South Australia and how yeah, they, they um, dropped off the thing? Now, the question is, how do we end up with so many people of mixed blood identified as part Aboriginal by the time 1900. And this is something that, that has baffled me. Why did so many people become other than full-blood Aborigines within 100 years? Um, and one has to then have a look at the society in which they were in. Uh, one of the posts I'm going to do, re I'm going to do a series of posts on all this stuff, but one of them is going to be um, 
thank God the British have finally arrived. <laughs> you know, I mean, in the true sense of the word, thank God the British have arrived. I mean, within colonisation, what's that? Education, healthcare, um, social services, cl- food, clothing, housing, and so it goes on and on and on with, with what, what the British bought. So when it actually comes to now we look at the people of, of mixed blood and why they, why we have such a large proportion, the, the, the primitive society was incredibly violent. Um, one-third of Aboriginal women, one-third were murdered, bashed to death, and the incest and the neglect um, is, was trust tremendous among the, the, um, the Aboriginal society. So uh, people wanting um, self-respect or even uh, livelihood um, found a way to to mix him with the colony right from the time the British arrived. So when we're talking uh, mixed blood, somewhere in the history, uh, the women uh, paired with the white men. It's just use uh, you know black and white. But uh, so you had Aboriginal women marrying white settlers. Was that something they were forced to do, or was that something that they did of their own volition? Um, it's, a, it's a question that I had to sit and ponder myself, um, you know, in a rational sort of a sense and say, why? I mean, the obvious thing is, oh, they were dragged away and raped, but, but no, not 95% of the population. Um, and so you've got an, a natural desire for, for uh, because, I mean, again, there's a shortage of women. So that is the first thing, um, white settlers coming out. So there's a, a natural um, desire, obviously, to pair. Um, there and, and Aboriginal women were uh, they saw themselves as being treated a lot better. I mean, I remember a story I read where uh, Aboriginal women were being sold, of course, um, and to, to ship's captains and they would work on the ships. When the ship came back and they said, Well, it's time to go home, she says, Not on your life, you think I'm going back to the village, you know. And I mean, I don't know if I put that in the book or not, but but here was a, a case in point that Aboriginal uh, society of survival of the fittest was not an attractive option. Um, and so that's all I can really say is to try and understand why there was um, such an integration, and that's the word to put, an integration of the society so so quickly and so effectively. Let's see if we can squeeze in another couple of calls. Lots of people trying to get through. Roseanne is in Everton Park in Queensland. Hi, Roseanne. Need to be quick. What are your thoughts? Yes, I just want to know, like um, Mr Reynolds has written a book, 1770 to 1901. Now, today he has given us a whole lot of information about Aborigines since 1901. Does he have a website with that information or written another book? Please. If you go to um, Reynolds Learning, Reynolds without the S, ReynoldLearning.com, you can you can pick up the book which is on the boat now. It's a beautiful big book. Um, to see it is to want it, um, and or you can pick up the cheaper version of the ebook. But all this information and so much more is there um, that will just get you in in love with your country. You'll walk around like I did. My wife never read the book; she just listened to it for five years. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you so much, Roseanne. Let's see if we can squeeze in some very quick calls. John in South Australia. Hi, John. Welcome. How you going? Good. Need to be quick, John. What are your thoughts? Uh, <clears throat> yes, I'm early 70s at the moment, and I remember when I went to primary school, um, the uh, Aboriginal problem uh, is uh, found out that they are definitely not First Nation people. They are immigrants to this country like everybody else mm-hmm. because it was found... 
uh, when we were taught in primary school that um, there was canoes at the top end of uh, this country and they found that they come from Papua New Guinea, uh, from fishermen and even maybe from the Indonesian islands as well. And I'm getting really fed up with people always calling them First Nations. They are not First Nations. John, it is controversial and uh, it's challenging and we've tackled this topic oftentimes and sometimes with creationists uh, who'll say that uh, ice ages, uh, which formed ice bridges, land bridges between Australia and the north, even as close as the past 4,000 years, and some like to use all sorts of different figures in there, uh, but we won't go into that today. You might have some thoughts. You might want to connect with our guest afterwards, but I want to squeeze in one more call. John, thank you so much for calling. We'll take it as a sort of a comment. Let's take one more call. Mike is in Tasmania. Hi, Mike. Hi. Well, for God so loved the Aboriginals that he sent the British with the gospel of Jesus that they may be saved. Well, that's an amazing uh, that's an amazing concept that you raise there because sometimes I think of that. Uh, there's all sorts of controversy around the arrival of the first fleet, uh, all sorts of challenging, controversial things about whether we were invaded, but the gospel that was being formed in those revival conditions under John Wesley made it to our shores, and uh, and there were some wonderful transformative and developmental things. Uh, thoughts here from uh, from you, Christopher, for Mike. Yes, I do. The Christian gospel in our lives has to needs to be fleshed out, and so I have spent my ni- my life not necessarily in the church, but as a Christian in politics, in ethics. How does this law affect? our livelihood and our life in America and Australia. And so even now with this particular issue, I now find myself as a Christian with this book and, and all of this legislation before us, finding, finding that I now need to again flesh it out and be a Christian involved in what's going on. Mike, thank you so much for your call and time has run out. And if you're wondering, how do I get a hold of this book? But before I just give the website one more time, uh, you say, Christopher, you know, you walk around and uh, your wife's tired of hearing you talk about it for the last five years. And you say, when people get a hold of your book, uh, they'll take on a whole new love for Australia. Let me ask you, will Indigenous as well as non-Indigenous have a love for Australia when they read your book? I'm hoping so. I've got I've got the book being looked at by Jonah uh, Lindgren at the moment, an Aboriginal woman who was a senator, and she opened it and got really excited. Oh, look at all the pictures, she said to me. You know, this is great. Um, and I'm hoping that uh, Warren Mundine will do the book launch in Sydney. Okay, so there's a real connection there too. Uh, to get a hold of Christopher Reynolds' book, it's called What a Capital Idea, Australia, 1770 to 1901. He mentioned a website, reynoldlearning.com. Reynold, R-E-Y-N-O-L-D, learning.com. What sort of resources have you got on your website uh, there, Christopher? Uh, well, there's, there's a number of books. This is obviously the one I'm promoting at the moment. Um, but in the past, I've done a series of children's poetry books, um, so that's uh, helping kids with learning, uh, with their, uh, with their um, learning uh, development, the literacy. And there's also a book on learning development that took me 10 years uh, to develop a program helping children with learning problems. So if you have a child or know of a child that has a learning problem for just $20, you can get incredible resources to help you with those children. Uh, there's lots of dimensions to our guest today. ReynoldLearning.com is his website. 
Uh, you no doubt can send a message through the website. You can connect directly with Dr. Christopher Reynolds. His book is What a Capital Idea, Australia 1770 to 1901. Christopher, let's make another date for another day to have you back again and uh, unpack a whole lot of this uh, fabulous and just uh, this history of Australia, which you articulate so well. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us on 2020. An absolute pleasure. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au. 